Jet Set Breakfast with Michelle Constant, 7 to 10 a.m. Six minutes past nine and on a Sunday morning, we like to have our guest that we can interrogate, that we can talk to, that we can converse with and uh, learn about them, their own choice of guests, their own music and indeed what they're reading as well. Our guest today is the Head of Strategy and Communication at the Banking Association of South Africa. But in the past, he served as South Africa's ambassador to Oman for five years and then to United Arab Emirates for another four years. He's worked for various private and public entities, including the Government Communications and Information System, GCIS, and also Mapungubwe Institute or MISTRA. And then, of course, he holds a PhD from Wits University and uh, graduated with an MPhil from the Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University. There's a long list to his uh, selection of, uh, or certainly to his CV, but uh, we're going to find out more about him right after his first choice of song. To the break and then to a song. Abba, I hope I can call you Abba and I don't have to call yes, you Dr. You Omar. <laughs> What an extraordinary song to start our hour with, and it truly mm. is a meditation. Mm. It is. Um, at, you know, uh, as, as you're saying, and I've spent time in the Middle East, and um, about in the first week or so, we had arrived in Abu Dhabi and uh, attended this, uh, my wife and I attended this free concert, and uh, Anwar Ibrahim was playing there. I had never heard of him before, to my embarrassment, because I think, you know, I love my music. And uh, it's so beautiful. And so, so the name is, uh, it's, it's not one of his more famous uh, CDs, uh, compilations, but uh, for me, it's one of the best. It captures something about, Astrakhan is a city in the, in the Volga, and uh, you know, it's regarded as the easternmost tip of Russia. And, <laughs> and it's a real mixture of people. There's apparently like hundreds of ethnicities and 14 religious denominations there. And uh, Abraham, uh, you know, uh, Anwar Abraham, coming from Tunisia, it was exposed to this kind of mixture of cultures and things. You know, uh, Genghis Khan, even Batuta, Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, the Cossacks all went through Astrakhan, you know. Wow. And, and it's called Cafe because it's this beautiful playing between the oud, the clanness, and the drum. You know, it's amazing coming together of words. So I really liked it. And, and I thought I'd like to share that uh, with you and whoever's listening in. You know, it's um, I love that you say I'd like to share that because what it does talk to is it talks to community. And you've spoken of the idea of the cafe as community. And even when I look at the work that you do, I mean, communications is so much about community. It's about letting people learn something, getting people together, getting people to understand why things are happening and uh, diversity of of ideas, but bringing them into community. Talk yeah. to us a little bit about that in terms of the work that you do, but also your life as 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 an ambassador, which is also about community. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, uh, I think you know, uh, we're coming from pretty humble background, Durban, all the way to that moment in Abu Dhabi. I think it was an incredible journey. It's uh, years of activism, years of exile, and, you know, um, I think somehow I've been able to play a communication role just about everywhere. Um, mm. 
I led my first protest when I was 13 years old, and, and I communicated to the authorities as, as well as I could. Um, and so, yeah, being an ambassador, you're representing the country. It's uh, an incredible, incredible responsibility that I didn't take lightly. I think, you know, unfortunately, some, the quality of some ambassadors leave a lot to be desired. But, you know, a lot of us in that period took it seriously. Uh, we, we brought together the South African community, but we also had to interact with a whole load of role players. But the most important audience we had to deal with were the host, was the host country. Yeah. Um, and that got me into uh, understanding the Arab world a lot better. I even tried um, uh, studying Arabic, which is, I think, I know you've been doing Zulu lessons. I think Zulu and Arabic are among <laughs> the more difficult languages uh, to get to grips with. You, know, you think you kind of know it on the surface. Um, but it was helped by, you know, having a very attractive Lebanese uh, Arabic teacher <laughs> who kept me uh, all very interested in the course. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a really, really interesting time being exposed to culture and then also introducing people to South African culture as yeah. well. So, you know, you talk about this incredible responsibility and um, um, I'm interested in what that responsibility entails to be an ambassador of a country in another country because there are all those questions around soft power, um, strategic power, and, and even the word power is a problematic word in itself. So right. is, is it like soft engagement, strategic engagement? What, is it all, what, what does that responsibility entail? Yeah, I think at the, at, the, at the basic level, you're there to make sure that you build relations between your country and that country. And then you kind of break it down. Um, you know, on our side, uh, we, we had a South African agenda. We also had an African agenda. So both in Oman and Abu Dhabi, um, uh, especially in Oman, we, uh, we with South Africa, the South African embassy was the first sub-Saharan African uh, embassy. The others were from North Africa, obviously Arabic speaking. Yeah. And uh, it was really good placing firmly on the on the public sort of mind that there is an African agenda, we uh, made sure that uh, we celebrated Africa Day every year. Um, so you know that's one of the things that you you do. You, you promote your country, you promote your continent. And in both cases, but especially in Abu Dhabi, given the kind of uh, the center of business that it is of that part of the world, yeah, uh, we had to push trade. Um, um, and you kind of like sometimes forget what you're achieving until when I got back from Abu Dhabi, came back to South Africa, and one of the Durko, um they have a, a radio station there, and the guy was interviewing me, and he said, you know, you, you broke the you broke the record in terms of growth of trade. Then sure. I realized, yeah, we did pretty well. So trade very important. Also, making the country an attractive place to invest in, you know. So, and you, you just network all the time. You know, you, you never relax. Even your social life is just about networking, speaking to people, making friendships, obviously very important. And even to this day, you know, I've maintained contact with a lot of people that I came across, both in Oman and Abu Dhabi. So let's, you know, when you talk about that, it does seem to draw so, so, so neatly into the book that you are currently reading, which is The Narrow Corridor, State Societies and the Fate of Liberty. Yes. Tell us about the book. Um, it does, as I say, just seem to pivot straight into the conversation. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, it's, 
sort of, I know, um, you know, the, I, was, I was just looking at my ultimate book, but, you know, there's a whole range of ultimate books at one click. And I thought, let me look at the ones that I'm reading now. And, you know, my uh, bedside table is strewn with both <laughs> fiction and nonfiction. So, you know, I'm currently going through the uh, On Earth, we are briefly gorgeous, you know, by the Vietnamese, right? Yes. Ocean Beyond. Incredible. My daughter gave that to me as a birthday present. Really beautiful. I don't know what's with these Vietnamese writers. They're just amazing. They're pumping it out. And next to that is a narrow corridor. And I thought, you know, given the kind of issues we're dealing with now, this really seemed to be the one that uh, I would like to talk about. So, uh, Daron, I, I hope I get his surname, Esamoglu, who's of Turkish origin, uh, works at MIT, and then James Robinson, who's of British origin, working at Chicago University. They're famous for having written the book Why Nations Fail, and I think you may have come across that, and they spoke about the importance of institutions. So in this book, what they've done is they've taken it a lot further, and and they talk about where societies, where countries can be either, um, and I'm only going to pronounce this once, despotic leviathan, (laughs) drawing from the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes, uh, or they could be absent Leviathan. So, you know, despotic would be the all-powerful state that's very controlling, etc., etc. You know, you can read apartheid into it, you can read Nazi Germany into it, you can read Turkey through its uh, dictatorship period into that. And the other extreme is the absent Leviathan, where, you know, the, the state is not all that present. And... Um, so the first is because of the strong state, the absent Leviathan is uh, a stateless society. And between the, uh, and he also refers to, uh, uh, they both refer to paper Leviathans, like uh, countries that are oppressive, um, really nasty little piece of shit, but they're not all that powerful as states. So, you know, you get India, Argentina, Nigeria, and at different points, they're repressive. Yeah. So what they're arguing is that to achieve liberty, you actually need to move from those two extremes of the despotic and the absent into what they call the narrow corridor of liberty. Wow. And they say it's a narrow corridor because this balance can be upset so often. Um, and it all depends on the norms uh, that the country has inherited and the kind of institutions that have been created and so forth. So they said it depends on the coalition that have been created. Um, and and they and they go into South Africa quite nicely. So I think you know, uh, if uh, if people don't want to read the whole book, it's a big, big five hundred pages. There's some nice chapters dealing with South Africa specifically, and they look at the the whole thing of how we came out of a despotic apartheid state into a democratic state. And they said Nelson Mandela played a powerful role. He created coalitions, and and fortunately, the coalition weren't just of the press people, but they were able to get in fractions of the ruling elite to come in. The second thing was they said, depending on how the balance of power is located when the transition begins, and then what they call the shape of the corridor. They said a shape, a corridor could be broad or it could be narrow. Now, sometimes it's narrow because, you know, you've actually have very limited room to maneuver <laughs> or broad. And we had something a bit of both. You know, we had a bit of broadness of the democratic space But at the same time, repressive measures continued well into the 90s. So, you know, I hear you you talk about the narrow corridor. So the book, The Narrow Corridor, State Societies and the Fate of Liberty. And it it makes me think about the fact that you, you could choose 
you know, you could choose to go into the narrow corridor or you could choose to go into one of the other scenarios. And I use the word right. scenario, obviously, very, very deliberately because I know that you have been working with um, the Indulamiti scenarios with Mistra. And yeah. I, I wonder if you could talk about the the challenge that it means for South Africans, not just for governments, but also for society. So there's the state, there's society, there's the... Um, the public sector, the private sector, civil society. How do we shift into the the scenario that we want to be in, which would be potentially that narrow corridor? Right. So, and I think here we're talking about Naile War, which was the kind of desirable scenario, although we hate having a desirable scenario. And I think that would have represented that kind of balance between a state that is capable, that is delivering, etc., and a society that is able to keep that state in check. So that's where the desirable thing would be. And, you know, we've got it all spelled out. Um, we've got uh, the National Development Plan, etc. So I think, you know, the we I always say we shouldn't forget where we're coming from to yeah. work out where we're going to. And Absolutely. I think, you know, unfortunately, the Zuma era did weaken the state in many ways. And we also saw... Society being weakened for a number of reasons. People were demobilized. People were absorbed into government, etc., etc. I think under Ramaphosa's leadership, um, we can actually get to what they call the shackled Leviathan, which is a combination of a really good state and a really strong society. And I think that's where we can see ourselves moving. This is the best chance we have. Um, uh, he personally, you know, I think has to stand out and stand up to other forces within his own party and uh, within society itself. Uh, you know, just two examples is the question about tobacco and then the question about religion. And mm. I think in some senses we feel that maybe he overconsults, but then he tries to create these coalitions that we need to take forward. That's why he's so strong about social compacting. And he keeps wanting to hear what people are saying and then bringing it together. You know, that kind of consultation, people are dismissive. And I don't think it's a sign of weakness. I think it's a sign of strength. I think, for me, the people that I've worked with best and some of the best bosses that I've had were people who shared the power they had. They didn't hold it to themselves. They didn't become death boss. Yeah. As he himself said, you know, when people are being frustrated with the lack of arrest, they say, look, I can do that. I can have all these dawn rays and have them all in orange overalls. Then you're going to say that I'm being a tyrant. And, and we mm. don't want that either, you know. So It is a bit like being a rock in a... Be, sorry? It is a bit like being a rock in a hard place. Hard place, absolutely, absolutely. So I think, you know, I'm positive. I think, you know, we're going through a terrible, uh, deep existential crisis as humanity uh, with yeah. COVID-19. Uh, but I think we can come through uh, in a number of ways. Now, it, again, it could go either way because, you know, people, uh, you know, another book that I'm interested in at the moment is uh, around the whole notion of the of surveillance capitalism, which yes. talks about the impact of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. And we're talking it now, if ever, hey? Whew. Absolutely, absolutely. And and so, you know, we could move in that direction where we just give up a lot more of our liberties, you know, and this is society simply handing it over to the tech companies. And through that, the surveillance state, you know, which uses these technologies, or we can say, no, you know, we want to keep our control over our lives. Yeah. And we can see both things happening. You know, we've, we're seeing society being activated 
at an incredible level. Soup kitchens, people doing wonderful things, making masks in their spare time, dishing it out to people, etc., etc. You know, um, I'm going to go to your next song before mm-hmm. we go to sports, and I have to say, yay! <laughs> the, what a fantastic, first of all, a fantastic album, Live at the Baseline. I mean, that Absolutely. takes you back to jazz at its very best in Joburg. Tell us a little bit about this particular choice song. Um, okay, so, you know, I, I unfortunately wasn't there at the, at the actual performance, but when I heard it, I just fell in love with the entire, yeah. with the whole CD, and and as I think I've single-handedly bought about 200 copies and <laughs> distributed in Oman and Abu Dhabi as an introduction to certain music. And I think it just represents some of best voices, best compositions. So it really lifts me up whenever I listen to both these guys. We're going, and that is the choice of our guest today, Dr. Abba Omar, Head of Strategy and Communication from the Banking Association of South Africa. And uh, I do, I actually do remember that gig, which is quite something. Vusi uh, Matlasela uh, and Louis Mshlanga live at the baseline. Incredible gig. Tiny little gig. Oh, that's fantastic. She's here. It's a little bit late, but she is here. Zai Khan with the sports. This is SAFM Sport with Zai Khan. Thank you, Michelle. A very good morning. Let's kick off soccer news. Former Liverpool fullback Jason McAteer says Paris Saint-Germain forward Kylian Mbappe will find it hard to settle at Liverpool under Jurgen Klopp. Reports at the beginning of November linked Liverpool with a move for the Frenchman, suggesting that the Reds' lack of transfers last summer meant that the money was ready to be spent in 2020. Another report at the end of April claimed that Jurgen Klopp, who has stated before there's absolutely no chance of Liverpool Liverpool signing him had been on the phone to Mbappe's dad in an attempt to engineer a move. Mbappe chose to compliment Liverpool recently, calling them a ruthless machine with a very good manager. Cricket, where Cricket South Africa acting CEO Jacques Fowle says government's decision to allow non-contact sport to return to play in South Africa is a big boost. The country moves into level three of its national lockdown. That's tomorrow. And all professional sports teams and individuals can start training again. Again, after they have motivated their procedures to government. Contact sports like soccer and rugby are only expected to return to play in level one of the lockdown. But this development is good news for sports in terms of cricket, golf and tennis. Meanwhile, cricket is still technically in its off-season, but a three-match T20 series against India on home soil is scheduled for August and under new regulations, it would be allowed to take place. Now, the West Indies cricket chiefs, however, have given their approval to a test tour of England where the team will stay in a biosecure environment, although players and staff will have to accept a 50% pay cut. The Windies were due to play three tests in England in June, but the threats of the coronavirus has pushed the visit back to July. Cricket West Indies Chief Executive Johnny Graves admits some players may be more reluctant. There has been some nervousness from the players and, and certainly here in Antigua, you know, we're now COVID-19 free. So um, it will be a very different perspective for our players to consider going on the tour. I think we've been very impressed uh, and certainly our medical practitioners have been become increasingly comfortable with the lengths that the England and Wales Cricket Board are going to to ensure that our players will be safe for the whole duration of this very different tour where there'll be seven weeks in a biosecure environment. 
And finally, rugby, where South Africa's Franco Smith has been confirmed as head coach of Italy's rugby team. Former Cheetahs coach Smith took over on an interim basis last November after predecessor Conor Shear resigned. Despite his contract running through to the end of May 2020, Smith will be supported by the assistant coach Marius Hursen. We'll leave it there for now. We'll bring you more sports. That's tomorrow on Sunrise with Stephen Critters. I'm Zai Khan. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown. Well, our destination over the next 25 minutes is with our guest presenter, Dr. Abba Omar, Head of Strategy and Communications at the Banking Association of South Africa. I mentioned earlier that prior to that, he had also worked at uh, the Mappangubwe Institute, MISTRA, which is a Johannesburg-based research institute, and they've just celebrated 10 years. So well done on that. Uh, Abba, your... Your guest, your guest, next guest, your first guest hails from Mistra. And uh, I suppose it talks to the conversation that we were having around friendship and mentorship. And we had this conversation off air a while back, but uh, I think Mm. it's a very valuable one. Yeah, you know, I I feel I've been really blessed that through my working life, I've worked with some really great leaders and bosses. Uh, I often say I, I like appointing good bosses. So... You know, I've had uh, Joel Mechatente as a boss uh, for like almost 14 years at different points in time. We shared an office in exile, you know, after exile, then GCIS and then Mistra. Um, uh, Peter Mann that I joined, uh, CEO of Meropa Communications, an amazing boss. Kat Kavadi, I think everyone knows, is an incredible boss. So I've been really glad. And I've always felt that the thing that I've learned from them is you know, you put trust in people, the people that are working with you and reporting to you, etc., and encourage them to reach higher levels and higher standards. So both the field, uh, and I told them, they must talk about me. Uh, you know, there's enough about me already in the first half of the show. But um, there are people that are kind of mentored at some point or the other, and they've often said, ah, if it wasn't for you, you need to play this role. And I said, look, that's all well and done. But uh, as young people, what would you expect of people that are in the older generation? Now, more and more of my thinking is going into that. You know, we they need to start leaving the stage, exit left, chase by bear, whatever. But we need to start, you know, bringing in young people, start taking control, <coughs> taking charge, reshaping the world. Um, yeah. And so Zanisani was one of the people that I had this, was really close to. She came there as an intern. She can tell your own story. And Tabang was my next guest. We still have time. Is uh, we connected anyway at GCIS? So Zunisani Matonzi uh, from the Mapungubwe Institute for Strategic Reflection, Mistra. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's so a pleasure. I, I want to talk to you about, uh, and and uh, I would like to hand over Abba to you as well as a, mm-hmm. a guest presenter. To I want to talk to you about what mentorship really means. Um, you know, earlier, Abba, you were talking about um, the shackled president, the president who opens up to others, who allows a conversation and uh, looks at the broader coalition as opposed to simply stamping his fist down and saying, this is how it will be, and then everybody runs. And in many ways, that is what um, leadership and mentorship is about. And yeah. Zunisani, maybe you could talk to it a little bit in your own experience. Okay, um, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much also to Abba, Dr. Omar, for mm-hmm. identifying me because um, the role that he played in my career and also in my life, it's 
so big. Um, so in terms of what mentorship is, I will link that with what um, Abba has done or what role he has played. Yeah. So first of all, for me, uh, mentorship, it's about coaching. It's about motivation as well as advising, um, also direction. So these are some of the things that Dr. Omar has sort of like played or stepped in my life. When I joined Mistra in 2014, I, I was an intern and I was under his leadership as well as the now director of project management, Kolelokashetatia. Uh, when I got there, honestly, I did not know what I was getting myself into. However, um, with the support and the coaching and the motivation, I know with ABBA, you were talking about scenarios um, earlier on. Um, when I started at Misra, that's one of the first projects that I worked on. He pushed me and also sort of like guided me to understand what scenarios and also what facilitation is. I had to step out of my comfort zone. I had to expose myself on things that I was not aware of. But when I was getting into those um, spaces, I had him and I had him by my side. I knew I could go to him for advice. And even in meetings, even if we were to go to meetings with different um, bodies or clients and stakeholders, before each and every meeting, he would be there and advise on how to conduct myself and hmm. also how to... Um, sort of like present myself and what I have on the table. So, so those, those are one of the few things that he has played in terms of mentorship. He coached me, he supported me, even when I felt like, oh my God, I think I've gotten way overhead ahead of myself. However, he was coaching, supporting me, was motivating me and directing me. That's why um, when he asked me to be part of the guest, to me, I was like, let me just go ahead because um, it is it, it, it is rare to find such leadership or to find such mentors. And I always tell him whenever I bump into him or when we meet, that's one of the things that I always say. Thank you for the role that he has played in my career and also personally because you then take those things that you are taught and then apply it in every day. So, so you know, so I, I have to ask you, you, you started out as an intern at yes. Mistrap. And I'm interested in how you you say you you had to step out of your comfort zones. What were those comfort zones? I mean, I'm I'm interested in what is when you when you go into a project as an intern. What are the comfort zones that you do work in, and then you go, all right, now I'm gonna have to shift and change completely. Okay, um, so before going into going to before I started as an intern at Mistra, I was just volunteering, and I wasn't aware that much of I was volunteering in another NGO, but in terms of me um, being in the front front line, I, I I really wasn't. I was always at the back line, but then when I came as an intern at Mistra, um, one of the things that happened is that Ava would allow me sort of like lead in terms of driving projects, in terms of um, interviews, in terms of research. So yeah. those are the things that I had never done before. But when I got there, he opened those doors and he, he pushed me to do it in a good way, if I can say. Abba, I do have to ask you, as um, mm. someone who has been a diplomat, a mentor, who is in the communication world, 
what are some of the skills that you, if you look at someone who, who is young, who's just moving into a workspace, maybe they are there as an intern like Zunisani started out as, um, what are some of the things that they need to think about? Okay, so the reason why, uh, and whenever Zunisani thanks me and says, and I said, no, no, you know, it was you that did it. And so I think a big thing is what comes from within the person. Um, hmm. So you have to show initiative. You have to show commitment. You know, you have to say, look, I'm going to take this on. Um, you know, others could have melted away and said, ah, you know, I'm quite happy just sitting back behind the desk and so forth. So, so I think two things. From the side of the mentor, you, you need to more and more. You need to have a bit of an arm's length relationship and then a two arm's length relationship and then a four arm's length and then eventually let the person go and do the thing themselves. So as long as you provide, uh, especially at the beginning, some kind of safety net so that you're yeah. around and, and they're assured that you're around. So, you know, when you're teaching someone to swim, there's, you know, instructions say, I'm around, you know, you've got your floats and that kind of thing. And then you remove the floats and then the person starts swimming. And now Zinisani is facilitating workshops uh, and so forth herself. So um, a lot of it's from within you, uh, but the mentor needs to be, you know, just supporting and you know, you, 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 you just, you're just there to support and say, if something goes wrong, I'm around. I said, you can draw on me. So, that's so you know, it's so interesting because, and Zunisani, I'll ask you this, taking from what um, Dr. Omar is saying, is this idea of you, you go into a space and you're new there, and then he's saying, show initiative. What does that really mean? How, how, do, you, how do you do that? What if you're a shy person? Zunisani, maybe you can just, your own experience. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess showing initiative from my point of view and the things that I've done, I was open. Um, yeah. If I can say that, that, I was open to learn. I was open to take in um, whatever advice or criticism that comes my way. So... Also, volunteering. Um, as I said earlier, I was a volunteer first, so that is one of my traits. I, I'm one person who likes to put myself out there. So I used mm. to volunteer to do certain things and opening up myself to learn new things. And, yeah, I, I think I can put it in that way. It's opening up yourself, being wanting to learn new things, and also accepting what comes your way. So, okay, we are going to have to go to our next guest. And I want to say, Zunisani, what do you, like, uh, uh, Abba mentioned that you're now, well, you mentioned that you're now facilitating workshops and the, and the like. What is, what is the work that you do now? What your, your position? Okay, um, I'm still at MISRA. I'm a project officer there. Um, so what I do, I coordinate projects, um, consultancies, as well as I manage some of the priority research projects that we do. So I'm still at MISRA, but now I'm a project officer. And if you were... Basically, was a right-hand woman. Ah, (laughs) and we've had Kolelwa on the show as well, who's doing incredible work there at MISRA. Zunisani, if you had to advise a young person, I mean, we're going to see more and more young people given uh, the current COVID-19 experience. We are going to see more people who are out of job, who are Mm. looking at work. What Mm. would your advice be as someone who went in as a volunteer, as an intern, and uh, is now a project officer? Okay. Um, So what I can say is that from my experience, 
before I started at Mistra, I could not find a job. I had to open up myself. I had to look around. And what I could say to a young person who's looking for a job is just to continue. Do not stop. Continue. Find alternatives that can lead you to your direction. Um, if you have a certain goal, try to find lanes or routes that will take you to that goal. It is not going to happen now. It is not something that's going to happen in an instant. However, if you are out there, put yourself out there. That's one of the things that I would advise young people, just to put themselves out there, do what they can, and find the route that will lead them to your goal, to their goal. Fantastic. Tunisani Matonzi from MISTRA, the Mapungube Institute for Strategic Reflection. Uh, and uh, the first guest of our uh, guest here on the line, Dr. Abba Omar, which is going to take us into our second guest uh, rather finely, I must say. He's the executive head of the Nedbank Group Public Affairs. Tabang Chuane, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning and thank you so much for the invitation. So, Tabang, usually we would... He's got a good voice for radio. He hey, certainly does. <laughs> <laughs> and the face for it, too. Oh, that's <laughs> no, never say that. Tabang, I'm, I would usually say, okay, uh, about why your second guest, but I'm going to say your experience of working with uh, Dr. Omar, uh, I understand that you started together at GCIS, and which, of course, is a communication environment. And we've been talking a lot about what it means to communicate, to be part of a community. And also, and I will mention this again, Abba, you, you mentioned earlier the concept of networking and how important mm. that is. So, Tabang, I'll, I'll start with you. Your, cho- yes. your, your time with Abba, your learnings. Well, um so it's a good thing Abba has got a slighter um, or darker complexion because he's going to be blushing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but <laughs> you can hear it. He's already blushing. Um, but, <laughs> but I I I regard Abba as uh, as a mentor par excellence. Um, he used to call himself the lazy boss, but there was nothing lazy about that. Um, he just has a way of getting the best out of anyone. Yeah. And as a young man, I think I was 25 when I joined uh, um, um, GCIS. Um, in fact, um, I used to be in the Nelspreet office of, of SABC as a radio journalist. Wow. And I, I joined um, his, um, GCIS as the, the head of... Uh, what used to be called Gua News, I think it's called South Africa News now, which was South Af- which is South Africa's uh, South African government news agency, um, and in fact it was to set that up um, from what it was before, and I was given the reins to to do what I needed to do and the support to do it. We didn't have much money, um, but I got the moral support. Um, I remember in particular. In, um, when we hosted the um, International Anti-Racism Conference in Durban, um, I think I must have been 26 at the time or 27 at the most, and Abba gave me the, the, the role to head up the, the communication um, task team that organized 
um, the communication for that international conference. Um, I remember one of the moments that really showed me that this man is a, a true leader and, and a mentor was um, when he uh, took us to brief um, the Utah Ministerial Committee, which at the time was led by Minister Trevor Manuel. Yes. And and um, and uh, yeah, he, he he was meant not to be the easiest uh, uh, minister to please. So we were shaking, waiting to go in there, and he just kept on saying, "You'll you'll be fine. You'll do it. You'll do it." And and just just that confidence of being told you can do it. I mean, I was what 27, and I'd hardly ever done anything of the sort. And here's this man taking a chance on me. Of course, he had a lot more to lose than I, because I mean, I was starting off. But I think he saw something, and I think that he sees talent. He sees talent, and he invested. Um, I, you know, in in working towards that uh, conference, we used to have weekly meetings, and I remember one of these meetings. I mean, the meetings were in his office as the deputy CEO of CCIS, and it was meant to be at I think four o'clock, but he was running late from another meeting. We used to call it the secretariat because the the you know the top management of GCIS, and there we were, these four uh, youngsters in his office. Uh, we were allowed to go into his office, and the boss is not there. And uh, and there was some interesting artifacts uh, which as young people were very, inter- very interested to see. Uh, it turned out it was um, some some very potent Greek liquor um, called grappa, and as I reached out. <laughs> To see what it was. He says, "Oh, Chilwani, you'd like to have some? Come on, have a glass." <laughs> of course, so, that wasn't the point. I was just curious to see what was in oh, this cabinet. So, but t- as a young person, and I mean, it was never an issue. In fact, um, I was made to drink this thing, and I thought it was as vile as it could come. But because I had been caught red-handed with a bottle in my hand. Uh, my leader said I must drink it. I don't know what was the rest of that meeting. I'm probably was just way too high to do something. <laughs> um, I, I want to I want to quickly jump in, and I just want to make sure that you you put the phone line a little closer to you because uh, it seems to be moving backwards and forwards. But you know, one of the things that and, and Abba, I suppose the question goes to you as well, is that you you when you mentor someone, and indeed when all of us work, there is. There's success. There's when you success and you achieve. But there's also failure. And how does one, I'd like to know from both of you, how does one address failure um, either as a young person who's going into the world or even other in the kind of work that you you continue to do? Mm -hmm. Tabang, Um, I'll start with you, Tabang. Yes, Tabang, yeah. Uh, Well, um, I think, um, the first thing would be knowing that you, your back is covered. Hmm. I think mo- most of us are afraid to fail because of the consequences of failure. Yeah. However, failure is the best teacher in my experience. And if when things don't go as planned, you do, you not, you do not get crushed. Uh, in fact, you get told, you know, it's fine, it's okay, it's, you know, next time we can do it better. And this is where you could have gone it, I mean, done it better than you have done it so far. 
that is the way to learn and that is the way to fail. Um, but I think if yeah. you do not fail, you do not learn. Uh, it's just how it gets in- interpreted and how the the ones or the superiors or the bosses um, deal with you when you have failed. And, and that, that's been my experience. Um, yes, we have failed. There were things that didn't go as, as planned. But we were never told we were useless and, you know, we should yeah. have been given this project. It was never going to pass because of us. We were, in fact, built and said, okay, next time we do it this way, this is how we could do it. That, for me, is a, 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 is a difference, and that's what I, I learned from Abba. Abba, on your side, failure, the concept yeah, of no. failure. It's a, I mean, I know we get told fail fast, learn, and all of that, but right. it's, it's not that easy. No, it's not that easy. I think a couple of things. One is, uh, and I'm going to be very brief because I would like Sabang to also, when you talk about networking, maybe just talk about his initiative around stakeholder relations uh, amongst organizations. Yeah. But I think plan, planning, planning, planning is very important. Um, and you take, you know, you identify the risks and so forth. And teamwork is very important as well. So, you know, it's not just the manager that's leading, but also the colleagues that are with you in the project uh, and they, and because you plan well, you look at the risk, you look at the environment, you're aware if something's going to be going wrong, you know, you, you start responding a lot earlier. Yeah. So, you know, the risk of failure actually gets reduced so much. And then, obviously, reviewing all the time. So, yeah, uh, I think, you know, it, you can really reduce risk, but through teamwork, good planning, uh, being sensitive to the environment of that project or the work you're doing, and then being able to respond pretty quickly and nimbly to that. Well, those are some uh, some good words for anybody who's uh, starting out in industry, starting out in, uh, as an entrepreneur and the like. Tabang, let's close off with you briefly because we do have to uh, close all together. But close off with you briefly. What is the networking project that you are doing with public affairs? Yes, um, well, uh, um, two years ago we, we launched the intern- um, the the Institute for Stakeholder Relations in Southern Africa. Um, the job that I've been doing for the past nine, ten years um, has been around um, stakeholder relations, and one realized that there wasn't such. Um, there are a lot of other institutes, but the, we, there wasn't one for stakeholder relations. So this is a place where we are gathering anybody and everybody who is into stakeholder relations who understands or wants to understand and learn more and uh, we 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 are um we do have a website um which is www.isrsa.org.za and and people can get more information they would would love to get a lot more participation and a lot more people um hearing and listening to what we are doing and participating with it as well what do you consider or who do you consider to be a stakeholder? Well, I was asked that once and I said everybody is a stakeholder. As long as you are alive, you've got stakeholders. Um, from the day you are born, your parents are your stakeholders. And and, and you, you are a stakeholder in their parents. So anybody and everybody. So it's, it's about networking. It's about understanding who is in terms of a grade, your number one or number two, number three stakeholder. But we are all each other stakeholders. And certainly we're stakeholders of this country as well, which makes it very potent and powerful. Every single individual is a stakeholder. Definitely. Tabang Chirwane, the executive head of the Nedbank Group of Public Affairs and also the Institute for Stakeholder Relations, ISRSA, certainly something to look up and have a look at.
Uh, Dr. Omar, Abba Omar, in closing, we are closing uh, with uh, Keith Jarrett in the background, who is one of your artists mm. that you've chosen. But, I, but I, I'd like to maybe close off because I do consider you to be a stakeholder of South Africa mm-hmm. in, a, in a great way. Um, certainly my experience of you and having worked with you in the past has seen that. Mm. What do you think it means for us as individuals to be stakeholders? Yeah, I think it, being stakeholders means we take responsibility as well for the common project. You know, we, we, we could be stakeholders of a company, an organization, but being stakeholders of a country means that we should all act as citizens. We should all take responsibility. We shouldn't sit back and think, oh, well, Ramaphosa is going to do this. Or